Welcome. This is the short concept lecture that belongs with topic four, where we discuss originating process, uh, reasonable prospects, and uh, we also consider service of originating process. Well, each jurisdiction has different provisions and forms that are required to be used for what we call originating process. What is originating process? Well, it's the document that begins a set of legal proceedings in civil law. The legal effect of the documents, albeit they'll differ from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, is basically the same. So, for example, an action where there is a cause of action between two parties disputing facts is commenced by a statement of claim in New South Wales. In Queensland, it's commenced by what's called a claim. And in the Northern Territory, the same set of proceedings would be commenced by a writ. In the federal sphere, originating proceedings are by way of a document called an application. The purpose and goal of originating process is to bring the cause of action to the notice of the defendant and any other parties and to properly set out what the claim is about. How we do this and actually plead an originating process is something we will cover later on in the subject in the topic of pleadings. It's important to note that the type of originating process you will use depends firstly on the type of matter that you're dealing with. If the dispute is a cause of action, namely a dispute between two or more parties where factual matters are in dispute, then generally you will commence by a writ or a statement of claim. Where there is only one party moving the court for orders, we call this a matter. So an example of a matter would be a single party seeking declaratory relief, a trustee seeking directions on the administration of a trust, or a law student seeking admission from the court as a legal practitioner. These applications raise issues of law and aren't a dispute between two parties about issue of fact. Originating process, therefore, for these types of matters is a summons and it can also be an affidavit or a notice of motion. The form of originating process will depend on the jurisdiction and the court in which you're commencing proceedings. Remember, uniform rules of procedure have been adopted in the ACT, New South Wales and Queensland. To determine what form of originating process you will need to use, you will need to, firstly, determine whether the case you're working on is a cause or a matter. Secondly, look at the relevant court legislation and civil procedure rules for that jurisdiction to determine what form of process should be used. Let's take an example. Now, if I have a dispute that's a contract dispute in New South Wales, I will be going to the Civil Procedure Act firstly. If I look at section 19, that provides that proceedings in New South Wales are to be carried on in the manner prescribed by the rules of the court to which I'm litigating in. Let's say, for example, it's a Supreme Court matter. If I go to the Uniform Civil Procedure Rules, Part 6 deals with commencing proceedings. Rule 6.2 tells me that in New South Wales, I am to commence proceedings by either a statement of claim or a summons. Rule 6.3 tells me what sorts of matters require a statement of claim, and Rule 6.4 tells me what sort of matters requires a summons. If it's a contract dispute, then it's likely to be a liquidated debt, and thus I'm going to be using a statement of claim in accordance with 6.2. Do go and have a look at Part 6 of the Civil Procedure Rules and consider how this might apply to your assessment problem. 
Well, let's just back up the truck a little bit because before you commence proceedings, it's really important that as a legal practitioner, you have advised your client and you have explored alternate dispute resolution. Resolving civil disputes is essential, preferably before they have to be litigated and should come well before proceedings are actually commenced. In some instances, legislation actually requires alternate dispute resolution take place before you commence proceedings. So an example of this is the Farm Debt Mediation Act or under some of the provisions in the Retail Leases Act or the Civil Dispute Resolution Act, which governs the federal court and requires parties in that court or the federal circuit court to certify that they have exhausted ADR. If they have not, then they're to explain why the matter is not suitable for ADR. We will cover the different forms of ADR in much greater detail later in the subject, but I think it's important to flag with you that this obviously comes well before proceedings are commenced. And it is part of the duties and ethical responsibilities of a solicitor to uh, discuss this with the client, to advise the client of this before you march off to court and commence proceedings. Sometimes too, alternate dispute resolution will be part of practice notes and case management rules in the various courts. And the court will actually require you as part of its case management to engage in ADR. Now, this can be informal or quite formal, such as uh, the arbitration system for uh, common law matters in the New South Wales District Court. Courts will often default to referring a matter to mediation or arbitration as usual case management principles unless you as a party can show very good reasons why that would be unsuitable. If there is no requirement to mediate or attend ADR under legislation, you still can engage in this as a party. There's a number of ways you can commence informal negotiations with the other side of your matter. Without prejudice, correspondence where you explore settlement can be utilised. A letter of demand commencing the discussions between the parties is also something that can be used. Uh, settlement conferences, informal settlement conferences done on a without prejudice basis can also be very effective. By way of example, I used to act for an insurance company that would hold a whole day of settlement negotiations and conferences with plaintiffs and their lawyers in an effort to informally resolve each of the matters before they went further in court. Now, this is often a pragmatic exercise, particularly by an insurer, because they recognise that even if the plaintiff's case is weak, if proceedings are commenced or are allowed to go on for some time, both of the parties are going to spend a lot of time and a lot of money on legal costs and they won't get that money back. So they might as well try and get rid of the matter economically and cheaply early on. Let's talk about reasonable prospects of success. Maintaining independence and fulfilling the duty to administration of justice requires that legal practitioners determine whether proceedings should be commenced and maintained. And if you don't do this, it's an abusive process. Civil procedure and the court rules in a number of jurisdictions require legal practitioners to not only commence and maintain civil proceedings on the basis that there are reasonable prospects of success, they also require that it be based on provable facts and a reasonably arguable view of the law. Examples of this include sections 37M and N of the Federal Court of Australia Act, Schedule 2, Rule 2 of the Legal Profession Uniform Law Act of 2014 in New South Wales. Wasting the court's time and clients' money on matters that don't have reasonable prospects of success 
is fraught with problems. Firstly, it's an abusive process and it might result in adverse personal cost orders being made against lawyers, so see CT Bowring and Company and also Corsi Partners. Uh, consider also White Industries, Proprietary Limited and Flower and Heart uh, 1998 decision that's actually also contained in your textbooks. The other basis on which uh, commencing matters without reasonable prospects of success is that you're exposing yourself ethically to an action of negligence by your client if you've maintained proceedings that don't have any merit. So there are very good reasons as to why evaluating reasonable prospects of success are important. The conduct of hearings and interlocutory matters before the court still requires legal practitioners to exercise their duty to ensure the court's time is used to only hear matters that are genuinely in dispute. Practitioners have to be prepared to litigate matters efficiently and robustly. The Australian Solicitor's Conduct Rules, Rule 17.2, and also Section 56, Subsection 5 of the Civil Procedure Act requires this. See also Sections 19 and Section 25 of the Civil Procedure Act. What constitutes reasonable prospects of success was considered in uh, the case of DiGiorgio and Dunn, number two, which affirmed five principles set down in another case called Mamimbo Proprietary Limited and Adam, which was a District Court of New South Wales decision of August 2004. Now that case set down five principles when we're talking about reasonable prospects of success. And these included, number one, reasonable belief that certain propositions could be logically argued. Two, that there's material available to the lawyer to support those propositions of fact. And the court noted that the uh, evidence in this regard might be admissible and inadmissible. Thirdly, that the material constitutes a proper basis for alleging each relevant fact. Fourthly, that on a reasonably arguable view of the law, there's a proper basis to maintain the claim. And finally, that there are reasonable prospects that damages will be recovered, even if they are modest. The reasonable prospects of success requirement is also supported by the Australian Solicitor Conduct Rules, Rule 21.1, and that requires solicitors to ensure that the coercive powers of the court are not abused and only invoked appropriately. Rule 21.3 of the Conduct Rules requires a legal practitioner to not allege any matter in a court document unless they believe, on reasonable grounds, that the factual material available provides a proper basis to do so. So this duty of reasonable prospects of success means that uh, there is an obligation to properly investigate factual matters before you commence proceedings and ensure that there's sufficient evidence available to place this before the court that supports an arguable view of the issues raised in the case. Avoiding abuse of process may also mean refusing the client's instructions to commence proceedings when you consider there's no arguable basis available to support the cause of action. And your failure to exercise independent judgment in this regard could result in having those proceedings struck out with cost orders made, could result in the proceedings being stayed, and could also result in cost orders against the practitioner personally. See the case of Williams and Spouts of 1992. Sometimes evaluating cases can be difficult and it might mean you need to seek competent counsel's advice, a barrister's opinion on the prospects of success. 
The duty to the court to evaluate reasonable prospects also entails a continued re-evaluation of the merits as the proceedings unfold. So if the case is going south and you discover evidence that might suggest or contradict your client's cause of action or means or suggest that the cause of action is likely to fail, then you have an obligation to actually re-evaluate the proceedings and to take steps to ensure that they don't continue. The client has to be given full and clear advice at all times. Now, whilst a weak case can be maintained if it's arguable, a legal practitioner has a clear professional obligation to advise their client on the merits of the matter. Otherwise, you risk adverse findings and cost orders. Let's now talk about service. Well, as we learned in earlier topics with jurisdiction, service is one of the factors that defines jurisdiction. If a defendant cannot be validly served with originating process, then the court has no jurisdiction over that defendant. Service is therefore essential. The rules of service require that originating process in a certain form is brought to the defendant's attention by those documents being served on the defendant. Now, the only exception to this rule is ex parte applications, where orders are made urgently in the defendant's absence. And this is usually to preserve the status quo until substantive matters can be heard. Service, therefore, is the way that proceedings are brought to the defendant's notice. Now, traditionally, service could not be effected outside of a jurisdiction for in personam actions. And this would mean that you would have to seek leave of the court to serve out of the jurisdiction or wait till the defendant returned to the jurisdiction physically. The case of Laurie and Carroll illustrates this. And that is because the court has no jurisdiction over defendants that are not inside its territorial jurisdiction. However, that problem changed and was overcome uh, basically through the Service and Execution of Process Act of 1992. And uh, that governs the service of defendants in other states and territories and deems it valid throughout Australia if they're served in accordance with the provisions and requirements of the Act. As your textbook notes, when legally served with originating process, a defendant has four options. Firstly, they can do nothing, in which default judgment will later be entered against them. Secondly, they can file an appearance noting their intention to defend the matter and providing details of their legal representation and details of where they might be served with all future documentation. Thirdly, they can enter a conditional appearance now, if uh, you're in New South Wales or South Australia, there are no longer conditional appearances, but a conditional appearance would note your service for address, your intention to defend the matter, and that you contend that jurisdiction is incorrect or the service is invalid, so you're not submitting to the jurisdiction by filing a conditional appearance. Or in the High Court, you file a submitting appearance. In New South Wales, under Civil Procedure Rule 6.10, a defendant has 28 days to enter an appearance after service of a statement of claim. If the proceedings are a summons, then they must file an appearance by the date set out for doing so on the summons. Once an appearance is entered, proof of service is no longer required. However, if no appearance is entered and the plaintiff wants to move the court for orders of default judgment, then the plaintiff has to prove that service has been affected and has been affected in accordance with the rules. Service is addressed under Part 10 of the Uniform Civil Procedure Rules. This is in relation to New South Wales. Now, there are two types of service, uh, personal service and ordinary service. 
Personal service is usually required for originating process or for new and amended originating process, such as when a new party is added. It's also required for injunctions, applications where an order of contempt may be made or as required by statute. Rule 10.3 provides that for Supreme Court matters, service of originating process may occur anywhere in Australia, New South Wales or elsewhere. When it is served interstate, a notice pursuant to the Service and Execution of Process Act must be included, stating that the document has been duly served in accordance with that legislation. Where it is originating process that you are serving, Rule 10.2 requires personal service in certain matters. These include originating proceedings in the Supreme Court, the Industrial Relations Commission, including the Commission when constituted as the Industrial Court, the Land and Environment Court, the District Court, or the Dust Diseases Tribunal. When serving the document, service is completed by leaving a copy in the presence of the person, the defendant that is, and advising them of the nature of the document. See Rule 10.21. Now, remember too that there are specific rules under the Civil Procedure legislation as to how long a uh, originating process document is valid for before it becomes what we call stale. This means that service has to be effected within a particular time frame before those proceedings go stale. Now, Rule 10.21 also accounts for the unusual event of where violence is threatened against a process server. The fact of the matter is sometimes people don't want to be served with court proceedings, understandably, and can get quite emotional and reactive. The rules deal with this, and so have a look at Rule 10.21 to see how it provides. The rules also provide details on how you're to go about serving the Crown Solicitor and other government entities. When a document's personally served, you need to ensure that you have what we call proof of service. And the reason for that is, as I mentioned before, if the defendant fails to file an appearance um, or whether service is contested by the defendant as being invalid. Uh, Proving personal service is usually done by way of an affidavit, which is sworn by the process server. Usually solicitors engage uh, process servers. These are quite specialised people who know effective ways of bringing legal process to the attention of people. And uh, it can often be quite funny hearing the stories of process servers and people who are avoiding personal service. After originating process, if an appearance is filed, then the method for serving documents uh, going forward in the matter as the proceedings progress is set out under the Civil Procedure Rules, Rule 10.5. Usually the method for uh, further service of documents is by posting them to the party's legal representatives or their residential address. Note that usually uh, electronic service is also permitted for in the various rules. Uh, There's provision in the rules also in most jurisdictions that the parties might agree to consensual service of documents and that the solicitor for a represented party might also give an undertaking to accept service on behalf of their client and this is deemed to be valid. Solicitors must make sure though if they're going to do something like this that they have the specific instructions of their client to accept service and to enter an appearance on their behalf because you are submitting to the jurisdiction of the court. So if the client subsequently changes their mind and you haven't actually got their specific instructions, you've got a problem with some professional negligence. What happens if the defendant that you're trying to serve is a corporation? 
Well, companies are legal persons for the purposes of the law and for purposes of serving, and they're able to be sued and to sue in their corporate name and style. If you're serving originating process in the Supreme or District Courts on a company, uh, sorry, at, at all, you're usually required to personally serve this, but what do you do with a company? Well, Rule 10.22 of the Uniform Civil Procedure Rules uh, provides that personal service is affected on corporations by personally serving the document on a principal officer of the company or by any other manner that is permitted by law, that is namely by legislation such as the Corporations Act, that's equivalent to personal service. Now, how are you going to ascertain who the principal officer of the company is and what their address is? Well, you need to then undertake a search of ASIC's company register and to determine the registered office for the company and the office bearers who are principal officers. For service of other documents where it's not personally required to be served, Section 109X of the Corporations Act provides that service might be affected on companies by leaving documents at or posting to the company's registered office, delivering a copy of the document personally to a director of the company that resides in Australia, or if it's a liquidator of the company that's been appointed, leaving it at, posting it to the address of the liquidator's office um, that has been most recently placed as being the notice. If the company's under administration, then leaving it at or posting it to the office of the administrator um, in the most recent notice of what that address is. So you can see how legislation can sometimes provide for how services to be affected going outside of the civil procedure rules. Note the court also has considerable discretion to make orders on how personal service might be affected on a company. So for foreign corporations, if you wanted to sue, to sue them, services affected pursuant to Section 601 CX of the Corporations Act by serving the document on the address of the foreign company's local agent. Now, if a company's in wind-up and proceedings to commence the wind-up have begun, you can't commence proceedings against that company without leave of the court. So you must establish before suing a company what is its status, that it is still registered, and that it's still incorporated. You can commence proceedings against a partnership or a business name, but you have to note the individuals behind that name and affect service on those people personally. Usually business names are registered to um, companies or partnerships are carried on by individuals. And a business name and a partnership are not a legal entity in and of themselves and can't be sued. So you have to sue the legal persons behind the business name or behind the partnership. We'll look at this further when we start to consider pleadings. As I said before, there are a number of ways service can be affected. And under the civil procedure rules, personal service is required for originating process. It's also required for subpoenas to produce garnishee orders and examination orders. Now, garnishee orders and examination orders come to enforcement of debts, uh, whereby you bring the judgment debtor before the court in order to essentially cross-examine them about their means and assets. And garnishee orders are orders made by the court to actually attach an order that a part of the person's wages is taken out to remedy a judgment debt against them. To affect service personally on somebody requires in some instances leaving the document in their presence as I mentioned before. Now talking about time for affecting service as I mentioned, uh, you have to affect service before the originating process goes stale 
And in most jurisdictions, it's 12 months. But you should note it's very important to check this because in New South Wales, South Australia and Tasmania, it is six months from the date of filing. In some jurisdictions, time to serve can be extended by application to the court, but not in New South Wales. If it goes stale, you have to file fresh proceedings, assuming, of course, that you haven't got a limitation period that's expired. To locate the time period for service of each of the processes, you need to go to the civil procedure rules or the rules of the court in which your originating process is issued. In New South Wales, for example, the time period set out in Rule 6.2 of the Uniform Civil Procedure Rules and is not able to be extended by the court. If the process goes stale, new originating process has to be filed. What about substituted service? Well, in certain instances, service of a party is impossible. They might have left the jurisdiction, they might have disappeared and cannot be found. All jurisdictions allow orders for substituted service and your textbook details this in quite some detail. To obtain an order for substituted service, an applicant must make an application to the court and prove that there are difficulties that make personal service of the defendant impossible or too difficult. Secondly, the applicant must submit some way to the court of ensuring that the originating process has a very good chance of being brought to the defendant's attention. See Uniform Civil Procedure Rule 10.14 sub Rule 1. There's a number of ways substituted service can be achieved by order of the court, and these include things like serving somebody's spouse, serving their solicitor, their agent, serving a compulsory insurer of a defendant, or through advertising or postal service. In certain instances where the defendant's outside of the jurisdiction, orders of substitution uh, for service may be made, but this is often, more often than not, covered by the Service and Execution of Process Act. So note also too, when the defendant's outside of the jurisdiction, when the writ is issued, the plaintiff will not be entitled often to substituted service, but must serve the defendant personally when they return to the jurisdiction. Now, substituted service is different to uh, serving under the Service and Execution of Process Act, so do consider the differences in that regard. As I mentioned, uh, once service has been effected, an appearance is the first step for the defendant in dealing with and defending a case. As I said before, appearances can be conditional and unconditional, and have a look at the case of Moore and Gamgee in relation to the fact that once an unconditional appearance is filed, the defendant is effectively submitting to the jurisdiction. The federal court um, operates similarly uh, in relation to conditional appearances. It um, requires that you either file a submitting notice or you straight away go and apply for an order setting aside the originating process. That's on the basis um, of lack of jurisdiction or some other uh, irregularity that deems um, the process is invalid. In some jurisdictions, if the defendant wants to contest the service or the jurisdiction of the court on the basis of inappropriate forum, then they have to adhere to the procedural requirements to do so, and they have to make an application before the court to contest it. Uh, in New South Wales, a notice of appearance is filed pursuant to Rule 6.9 and must be filed within 28 days, as I said previously. Um, hopefully this concept lecture has been helpful to you and uh, has brought together some of the concepts of how we actually go about commencing proceedings and bringing those proceedings to the attention of a prospective defendant and party. 
As always, it's no substitute for careful reading of your text and considering carefully how your assessment problem might relate to the relevant aspects that we've discussed in terms of originating process, uh, the time for uh, serving that, and also the manner in which it has to be served to bring that to the attention of the defendant. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.